inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. A three-dimensional world, it used to be something uh, only for science fiction, and now it's an everyday part of reality. And uh, we're pleased to have here on our show this morning Amir Rubin, founder of a company called Paracosm, which deals very much in the 3D world and other uh, inventions. Uh, welcome to the show, Amir. Hey, thanks for having me, Richard. So, Amir, uh, I always like to start out with uh, the inventor themselves explaining what it is the invention is, uh, the core technology at least behind it, um, uh, what it does in in very simple terms, and then we'll come back and talk later on about sort of how you develop that. So, what did you invent, Amir, and what does it do? So, at um, I founded a co-founded a company in 2013, Paracosm, that. Um, has invented the world's first handheld color LIDAR mapping system. And it's a lot of fancy words there, but basically it's a device that um, the product is called the PX80, and it's a device that uh, you can, you know, hold, has a little handle, or uh, and you just go for a walk, and uh, in whatever environment you want, indoor, outdoor, and when you're done, we spit out a 3D replica, like a, a digital twin, of the real world environment in full color. <laughs> so it's like we've, uh, you know, one way I, I describe it is maybe you could think of it as we've turned uh, reality into a video game level. Okay, so I, I've seen uh, the uh, the product, the application before, and I have to say it is very impressive. I, I think one thing that uh, struck me was the speed at which you can do it, uh, because th the technology has existed, I think, for a while. Uh, you can do 3D mapping, but your invention enables you, and, and this is as of several years ago, so I know you've improved it, to do it very quickly and pretty very accurate to it a degree that's useful to a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. So there's been 3D scanning technologies for uh, that have been really good since uh, you know the 80s and 90s and they they've been scanning for, you know, oil fields and um, uh, oil rigs and uh, other industrial applications and the way old or traditional uh, scanners work is they're like laser scanners that are mounted on the old uh, surveyors tripods. You might have seen them when you drive by on a construction site by the side of the road. You might see a crew with a survey tripod doing surveys. So that's uh, pretty similar to how 3D scanning is has been done and is currently done. And our big uh, aha moment is what happens if we ditch the tripod and let people just go for a walk. And it lets you capture data really fast. That's never been possible before. And lets people go into uh, capturing new types of environments. Like we have customers, for example, in Japan who 
mount our little 3D mapping pod onto a backpack and they go hiking through the mountainous forests of Japan and they're able to 3D map in full color the the mountainous terrain and forests that, that cover 70% of Japan. So we're going to come back a little bit later and talk about the company you founded, Paracosm, and, and what that was like and, and is like. Um, but first, I want to talk somewhat about your background. You have a very interesting background, Amir. Just uh, the, the little bit that I, I know ab- about you is very interesting. You, um, you've been associated in town in Gainesville with a number of companies who are well-known, Shadow Health, uh, Prior Robotics. Um, you also had, uh, you have a patent for 3D cameras to weigh cows, mm-hmm. which I, I wager is um, one of a kind. Oh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, but let's go back before even, uh, and, and you're a graduate from the uh, University of Florida Computer Engineering, but let's go back before that. Tell me uh, where, where you're from, um, what were your sort of early influences as a child, maybe what your parents did for a living, um, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I would say that that all had an influence on me. Um, both my parents are PhDs. Um, and, you know, it's kind of funny. My dad was a, a scientist. He was a PhD in biology, but he he quit before I was born and decided to start his own business. So um, I've always kind of been used to seeing my dad, um, you know, uh, own his own small businesses. And, you know, he, he ran a hardware store when I was a kid. And then started a bakery when I was in uh, middle and high school. So kind of a funny combination of and science. Is where, and here in Gainesville? Or? Are in uh, South Florida. South Florida, okay. And then, yeah, and then my, um, you know, my mother is a, uh, a PhD, an education PhD, and, and is a teacher. So it's probably where some of the, the nerdiness came from, I think. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that, that's... As a, were you, would you consider yourself, were you a good student in school and uh, starting out? I was, I was like one of these annoying students. I, uh, I never did my homework and I never studied for class, but I, but um, you ended up doing well. Yeah. Math and science. I never needed to study for the, for the test. I always had like the, 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 you know, it's like, uh, if the, when I would take a test or, or do a report, like the answer would, um, just pop into my head. So I never really had to, um, um, work too hard at it, which always uh, drove people crazy. Uh, so by uh, did your did your teachers find this endearing or, or, or frustrating? And did your parents, uh, were they thrilled by this ability to sort of pull um, it out th- at the I last minute? I think it frustrates everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I remember I, even in like, um, for math and science teachers, they're cool. The English teachers hate it because mm-hmm. I would, I got like the highest score on the, uh, the IBAP exam without ever actually reading any of the books. So, <laughs> and your fellow students, I'm sure, yeah. were probably well. They were they they were they're, super smart too. So, okay. Yeah. So, in terms of science and math, I mean, it sounds like you always always had an ability to do it. What what were sort of the the first? Um, I guess was it a, a class or uh, you know? I know there are some people that their introduction to science. Or coding was, you know, a computer game, for instance. Is there any sort of epiphany that you had in terms of that you think led you into the field you are now? Yeah, uh, there was there was a two or three. The the first was uh, my parents bought a computer when I when we were um, when I was like ten years old. So I've always had computers in the house, and it was my I spent every day on it, you know. Um, learning how to code and, you know, initially basic and 
you know, other learning languages from back in the 90s, like Pascal. And then, you know, this was, this was you know, dialing into the local, you know, BBS and, and all this fun stuff. Um, but it never, you know, one thing that we kind of take for granted in the Cade, it's like something the Cade does a lot of work on is like the STEM and the STEAM, uh, you know, education and letting students know and you know now we have first robotics and we have steam so it's it's a known thing now when if you're in in like uh elementary middle of school that uh engineering is a career and i never no no one ever told me that like i i didn't know until i graduated i was halfway through college that there was such a thing as engineering let alone computer engineering so people think it's silly but in high school a big moment for me was taking um, physics one. And that was like the most mind opening class I've ever taken that to see that the world can be partially modeled by, you know, uh, physics uh, equations and theories. And our physics teacher was like, you know, you can become a physicist. And so that I I came to University of Florida as a physics major, um, because that seemed like a career path. And one day, um, I went to a career fair and, uh, like my sophomore year and there was not a single company hiring physicists, but there's a few who were asking, who were like, Hey, we're, we're, we're looking for computer engineers. And I was like, wait, that's, you can be a computer engineer. That's what, a thing. What year are we talking about? <laughs> this is, um, uh, 2000, 2001. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so, yeah, it was, it was kind of unheard of back then to be a programmer, a computer engineer. And then I had the fun of graduating 2003, which um, was the collapse of the computer engineering industry. And everyone had declared that, um, you know, computer programming, computer science and engineering is done. Is, is yeah. done. It's yeah. dead. There'll never be an industry in this in the U.S. It's over. And uh, there's not a single job to be had in it. So it's, that was fun times, too. So you're one of those rare students uh, that before you even finished school, you'd already founded a company. So what uh, you, you describe how your dad uh, ran his own businesses. Running a business is really different than you know sitting in a classroom, right, and and studying and doing assignments. What was it about? Was there something about the business world that attracted you in addition to you know the the content? I mean, obviously you you could have gone on and just gotten a graduate degree and a PhD, but you decided to found a company and then you before you were even out of school you joined another startup company. Shadow Health, and then you founded another one. So what what was it about that side that attracted you, the business side? It was a um, combination of all that. And I had stayed with my sister who, who lives in the Bay Area in California um, the summer before I graduated. And she worked at before the, the dot-com collapse in 99, 2000. She had worked at a um, one of these San Francisco dot-com companies. So I visited her and I was like, "Hey, this is pretty. This is pretty cool. They have these cool office chairs and free snacks." And so, it's always the snacks, it's right? It's always the free <laughs> snacks. And um, so, when I graduated finally in um, 2003, by this time, you know, uh, by the time I had stayed with my sister, you know, and 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 seen all that, I was convinced. You know, I had, by that time, I had switched from physics to computer engineering major, and then when I graduated. In, graduated in, in 2003 there was just simply not not an economy for for programmers or, or or software engineers and this was before the startup craze you know it was like facebook probably was just started you know um and no one 
outside of a few schools knew about them. There's no Y Combinator or anything. So I thought to myself, well, I there's no there's no jobs here, but I've I've seen it seen it done before. I should probably um, you know start my own company with some friends. And um, my then girlfriend, now wife, was um, just uh, accepted into UF veterinary school. So it's like, and I need an excuse to stay in Gainesville a few more years. So I'll start a computer engineering company uh, right here in Gainesville. <laughs> so that's a, that's a fascinating story. So um, so I was just going to add, in addition to the snacks, there's always a girl involved, right? Oh, so. yeah. Always, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So... Uh, so let's talk about your current company, Paracosm. Um, you founded that in 2013, so now going on, uh, gosh, six years mm-hmm. close, right? What was that like? I mean, you, you had you already at that point had the core idea for for the 3D sort of handheld, um, or did you? Or did you found the company first and then the idea comes, or was it the other way around? It was all the above. All of the above. It's always, it's always a chaotic uh, jumble. <laughs> and and so you obviously had to hire, I mean, how many employees did you have at the beginning? Was it just you, or did you? It, it was myself and four other co-founders. So okay. we started with a, a team of five. And were you guys, did you have any money? I mean, we're... I just, I put in um, everything I got from uh, my first startup. Okay. Uh, you know, from, from all the money I'd saved up from my previous startup and the the first company I founded out of school. So, you know, I, I, I emptied out my 401k and my savings and I maxed out my credit card and, you know, just put it put it all in. <laughs> and then your then-girlfriend decided to become your then-wife. Right? Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, that so that's, makes, that's financial pretty, pretty gutsy yeah. thing because at that point, did Paracosm have any clients or no. sales or nothing? Nothing, okay. just an okay. idea. Yeah. Just an idea. Um, all right, so you started out with, you said three co-founders or four co-founders four, four yeah, co-founders yeah. and how many employees does Paracosm has, have now we we were acquired last year by a larger startup uh, occipital and the Paracosm division is currently 22 employees and how much uh, are you in a manager role now or do you are you like the chief technical officer or? I'm, I'm the equivalent of like CTO slash uh, general manager president okay. of the division so do you, um, how much of your time do you get to spend on developing the technology or new technologies and how much time is sort of meant ac- uh, spent actually managing the division? We have a pretty good uh, workflow. So I, I, spend, I spend a lot of time uh, sitting with the engineering team, but don't do the actual engineering work myself anymore. And Do you miss that? Or? Um, yeah, you know, yeah. a little, but, you know, it, it's kind of... Um, it's really hard to, to do both. I yeah. think, um, you know, the, in order to do engineering work, you have to be able to have just singularly focus on the design problem or the engineering challenge you're working on. You have to be able to have, you know, four to eight hour blocks of time set aside just to work on, on your, um, so not going to meetings, projects, not, not going, answering yeah, emails, exactly. yeah, paying bills. Right. Yeah. And so once you start, having to um, be in a role where you're communicating and pitching and selling and, yeah, like you said, responding to, to people, then it's really hard to, to do both. <laughs> so I imagine the fact that you were acquired means that uh, you were profitable and you had clients at that point. Um, we were on the verge of it. Verge and, of it, okay. And so we, we, um, we are now. <laughs> I, I remember when we took a tour of Paracosm offices that uh, had to have been at least uh, three or four years ago or, or longer, uh, I remember 
the at that point, the type of applications you had, I remember very distinctly, it was, one was for uh, like a military type of application, special forces. Uh, another one was sort of like for designers, interior designers. And you listed a few others. What what has developed as kind of like your number one application or n- number one industry, so to speak, that loves your product? The short answer is uh, surveyors really have been taken taking to our product. So, you know, sort of like the the you know the early adopters are people who are already doing uh, lots of survey uh, for their businesses, mm-hmm. and they see this as like a a really sh- like shiny new tool that they can do their jobs much much faster now, and so that's been our early adopters is people doing land survey, building survey, and you know we're starting to expand into other use cases because early adopters just are seeing the the PX80, the LiDAR mapping system we developed as a tool to make their jobs much easier. And, and that's great for getting us a, a good flow of early sales. But, you know, it, it, we fundamentally see this technology as enabling an entirely new class of um, applications. So we see what we've done as a way to to always have an up-to-date digital copy of reality. So the it enables entirely new ways of thinking. So we're starting to get adoption, for example, on construction sites to be able to scan a construction site every week to precisely monitor progress and do quality control. And we're starting to get people use the PX80 to monitor like industrial facilities, factories, warehouses, you know, data centers, things like that are constantly changing and the facility manager needs to know what what's happening in their facility. So uh, we're we're starting to see you know new classes of um, use case that that are pretty exciting. So these are still mostly commercial applications, right? There there's not a retail no. end game at, at this point. No, no. We started out thinking there would be some some interesting uh, consumer and retail or end user use cases, and for a lot of reasons, it turns out that's that's a that's a very um, hard sell. Right. One of the companies I think doing a really successful job at that is actually like uh, the Niantic, the makers of Pokemon Go. They have a, a incredibly popular app. It's a Pokemon game where you hunt Pokemon in the wild. But you know, future versions of that app will start to use the the players, you know, the Pokemon trainers, uh, camera phone to map uh, parts of the the real world environment, mm-hmm. and so. You know, what we kind of realized is to make a uh, consumer play, there needs to be a primary driver uh, to the consumer beyond 3D mapping. Uh, for example, Pokemon Go or, or fun, engaging games like that. Whereas um, in the, uh, you know, enterprise industrial world, people people need their data. So you can, right. you can make a business just to selling tools to get people data. I had a, a guest, uh, I think you know, Randy Scott, a local um, entrepreneur uh, now in, in venture capital. And uh, he said one issue he found with sort of inventors and co-founders is that uh, one of the pieces of advice he gives them is the first thing they have to do is learn how to fall out of love with the science behind the invention um, and and coldly look at what are these sort of commercial applications, commercial potential. Yeah. And he said once he could do that, then you know inventors can really understand. Okay, just as you said, there's ultimately there's got to be 
a market or somebody wanting to use that. Yeah, anyway. yeah. We 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 initially thought this that this tech we developed would be um, really popular with game designers and you know like augmented reality games and and experiences and fun things like that. And so when we realized, kind of like what what Randy saying that when we realized the application is industrial well we made kind of a tough decision as a team to um just focus full time on very unsexy very kind of nose to the grindstone industries you know land survey construction facility management these are not they don't grab any headlines but but when you talk about important problems i mean we all live in buildings that need to be built. We all drive on roads and bridges that need to be inspected and, you know, hopefully done on a budget, finished on a budget and uh, complex facilities need to need to stay running. And yeah. so there's real need and real budgets to um, to support that. And that was a, you know, shift for us. But as soon as we made that shift, things started going our way. So the one kind of conceit we have to our old idea of like whimsical consumer games is we've kept our branding and our logo as like a fun kind of whimsical characters and and the branding we we, uh and the uh we we made um for the old vision of the company Mm -hmm. we we brought that into our new product and our new market and it it actually helps us stand out like our company mascot is a parakeet you know the paracosm Mm -hmm. parakeet and uh you know, people people know what the parakeet means now in the industry. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like you've learned a lot just in the last few years. It was something you said reminded me of uh, our, our architects that built the Cade Museum um, did a great job, and it's a fabulous, innovative building. We love it. And um, and they were very excited to build it. And, and I remember asking uh, one of them, I said, well, you know, don't you guys get to build stuff like this all the time? And they said, well... No, the majority of what we build is schools, hospitals, administrative buildings. You know, we're not we're rarely asked, hey, and, and you know, build this museum yeah. of creativity and invention and kind of do whatever yeah, you want. They're very innovative. Like, yeah, design. and so they're yeah. they're very excited. But it was an insight for me to understand that that part of the business was substantial. You still need schools, you still need hospitals, mm-hmm. administrative buildings, and you need competent architects to do that. Yeah, but we do use the Cade Museum in all of our marketing. Materials oh, good, it's a beautiful building. So <laughs> we we have it scanned many times, and and that's the scan we show off because. It looks cool. So, Amir, uh, you're not by any means an old guy, but you do have a lot of experience. You've done a lot of things. Sort of looking back on your career, both sort of uh, in in school and then also uh, as an engineer and a business um, a guy, what what sort of lesson learned would you give to uh, um, someone who early 20s maybe reminds uh, you a little bit of yourself and they're all charged up with a great idea, and they're they're off to the races. They're going to do the next big thing. What would you sit down and tell them over a cup of coffee? Hey, here are the things you definitely should do, and and watch out for this. Yeah, that's that's always a tough one because I think about that question often, and sometimes I wonder, you know, if you're not dumbly and blindly charging forward with the naive enthusiasm of just being out of school and the irrational overconfidence, you know, would you even get anywhere? And so I... So you have to be a little bit blind, right? Yeah, I, I don't like to, um, I don't like to give, you know, too much advice. You know, a lot of times I right. find like a lot of the advice I give might sound cynical or jaded. And when I spend time with students who are starting new projects, 
Because um, you probably get asked a lot, right? I mean, you're, I, you're a rock time. star in Gamesville, yeah, yeah, and so I, I'm like, sure people go, oh, ask okay. Amir, and he'll tell you that. In the, the past week alone, yeah, <laughs> I, I spend at least, you know, usually between two and four hours right. a week meeting with people just to, you know, try to spread the love and, and give a little encouragement. Yeah. And so I find it's better to just sometimes give encouragement and if someone's about to face a very obvious pitfall, try to kind of steer them uh, away from a pitfall. Uh -huh. But there's something to be said for like the high energy of uh, when someone has a lot of enthusiasm. Like I learn from that a lot of times when I talk to people. What are some of those common questions you get from those people? I mean, is it all just tell me how you did it or do, or there's something specific that they, they, they think they need to know and that you can tell them? I, I prefer when there's something specific. Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes people just want to kind of, you know, it's sometimes people just want to hear like my experience and, and let themselves, they'll draw their own conclusion. It's just a nice little data point that they can, I could say something like, okay, well, in your situation, here's, here's what happened to me <laughs> and draw your own parallels to that. Sometimes people have a specific problem, like there's a company here in town that just received a very large order unexpectedly for their product. And they're like, how are we going to build this? How are we, how are we going to get, you know, $50,000 to deliver this in a month? And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, good luck with that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I help however I, I can. The most difficult problems I encounter and that I usually am able to kind of see right away, even if the founders don't, is, you know, I'm like, well, let's, let's dig into the relationship between both of you here and, like, um, I think that's a, probably one of the main lessons learned is the relationship aspect of starting a business, especially with your employees and your co-founders and your investors. These are all relationships that, you know, will be strained heavily from the stresses of starting a company and trying to make payroll and stay in business. And that's, you know, my biggest advice is always for people to be mindful around that. And... In fact, you know, when, when, when people get far enough along the process and if I'm like really able to be more involved in mentoring or coaching them, I, I always, you know, my biggest advice is to learn about mindfulness and um, how to, you know, control your breathing and, and your thought processes to be, a, a, you know, to be more effective, you know, communicator in, in the very stressful situations that pop up when you're starting a a business. <laughs> it's interesting what you say about sort of maintaining that balance, I think, between uh, trying to inspire somebody, right, and encourage them, but also sort of uh, speaking realistically and, and honestly. Um, Phoebe, who you know, my, my wife and co-founder of the K Museum, was uh, asked to speak on a panel, and the subject of the panel was loosely sort of like uh, – uh, you know, starting a, start a museum. You know, what do you think? And yeah. Phoebe said, "This will be the shortest panel ever." I'll say, "Don't do yeah, it." Don't you know? do it. <laughs> like Next question, yeah. right? Um, but uh, it sounds like you have acquired. Uh, you know, I almost see a, a budding venture capitalist here. I mean, I got to mm -hmm. say, you know, you you have all this uh, very actual, useful information and insights into how these companies are formed. Um, and and sort of what tends to succeed and, and what doesn't. What's what's next on the horizon for you? Do you do you see yourself um, staying? Well, obviously you're not going to tell me if you're going to leave, but I, right. I mean, what what is on your bucket list? I guess say ten years from now, where where do you see yourself being? Um, you know, I always when when we started Paracosm, I said I'm I'm not going to make the same mistakes um, I made at at my previous uh, startups and my previous companies, and 
you know, we've we've gotten further than 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 I had before, and so you know, uh, Paracosm, and uh, you know, we we still have a lot of uh, a lot of items on our to do list that we're focused on, but um, you know, in in ten years, you know, life, uh, you know, the next next adventure will be. Um, I, I work really hard to suppress the ideas in my head to, to be able to focus on paracosm, but you know, there, there, there's always a next idea, and and you know, in ten years, I would see myself hopefully being uh, right back on the hamster wheel with with a new idea and making a, a new set of mistakes. Um, you know, just uh, keep trying to you know refine um, the the the. I don't like to call it a process. It's like keep trying to refine the experience of starting a company and, um, you know, make new mistakes. Don't really learn from the old mistakes and uh, try to do it a little better each time. So, uh, Amir, when you have that new great idea, come back on Radio Cade. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll we'll charge five bucks to download the episode. Yeah. Once we go platinum, we'll, we'll give you a few percentage points. There we go. I'll take it. <laughs> um, Amir, thank you very much for being on Radio Cade uh, this morning. I've learned a lot, and I uh, hope to see you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richard. This was a lot of fun. I'm your host, Richard Miles. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Hartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida, for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song, featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida.